All right, let's discuss hypoglycemia. So hypoglycemia is a complication associated with diabetes where the blood sugar drops below the blood sugar level drops below 70. Um, primarily, hypoglycemia is associated with diabetes. However, there are a couple of other things that could cause hypoglycemia. One of the things we talked about in class um, was alcohol consumption. I was a little bit confused with this one just because it seems it's kind of like exercise, right? Where it can cause low blood sugar, but can also cause high blood sugar. So I looked into that a little bit more and the way that alcohol consumption can cause hypoglycemia or low blood sugar is because uh, consumption of, you know, excessive alcohol consumption um, causes inhibition of glucogenesis. So what that means is it prevents the body from storing that um, glucose in the liver, you know, as glucagon like it does. And then if that store is running out of supplies, right, um, when your body has to produce its own glucose for energy, those stores have very limited stock. So that's how excessive alcohol use can lead to hypoglycemia because it prevents the um, body's ability to maintain normal blood sugars um, through that process called glucogenesis, which is that production of glucose in the body. Um, it also affects it a couple of other different ways. The, um, you know, just disruption of, of hormonal regulation, uh, again, be, going right back to that glucogenesis, because then when we're not doing doing that, then we're not having our body trying to maintain that homeostasis. The other thing that it can do is cause, um, cause increased insulin secretion, which is, so the insulin goes out there to try to metabolize that alcohol, but then uh, afterwards, you know, maybe it's excessive and we don't have any more glucose available. So then your blood sugar drops. So that was a little side tangent on how that works. But now let's get back to hypoglycemia. So we do have different levels of hypoglycemia, if you will. We have mild hypoglycemia occurring with a blood glucose level less than 70, moderate occurring at a blood glucose level less than 54, and severe hypoglycemia occurring at a blood, glu blood glucose level less than 40. And we do need to keep in mind, there's not a lot more room for it to drop, right? So hypoglycemia, severe hypoglycemia, is a life-threatening condition. Let us talk about the symptoms of hypoglycemia or the clinical manifestations. So remember we have high and dry, low and wet. So our wet for hypoglycemia is the sweating. So you have sweating, um, you have, you know, the person can appear pale, um, you know, shakiness, tachycardic, you know, they'll feel a little, um, you know, like their heart is racing, a feeling of hunger, and that's, you know, their body saying, hey, you gotta, you gotta do something, I need some energy here, right? Confusion, irritability, dizziness, lightheadedness, nervousness, anxiety, headache. In severe cases, it may cause seizures. Um, now, why are these symptoms what presents when a person has hypoglycemia? Well, it's because your body relies on the glucose for energy, right? So if there's no glucose available for energy, the brain doesn't have enough fuel. So it's not functioning properly. And then it's causing these neurologic and these physiologic responses to say like, hey, wake up. I, you know, you got, you got to do something for me here. I don't have enough sugar to, to keep you running as you should. So that is why we have 
those manifestations of, um, you know, of hypoglycemia. So, sorry, I said so a lot. How do we treat this? Now, the first thing we would want to do is confirm that, uh, that the patient is in fact hypoglycemic. When they're in the hospital, this is an easy confirmation, right? We check their blood finger, blood finger, oh my gosh, their blood sugar. So <laughs> I was gonna say, we do a finger stick, we check their blood sugar, but apparently we just check their blood finger and then all as well. So we do a finger stick, right? Now, this is a supply that we should have available to us, whether you're working in a long-term care setting, an acute care setting, we should have a glucometer. So if your patient is like, I feel weird, I feel off, you know, I just ate, but I still feel like I'm starving, I'm kind of nervous, check their blood sugar. That's, you know, I mean, it, we know it's not a very invasive procedure. Um, it's very quick. We have the results right away. So check a person's blood sugar. Uh, in some cases, you know, if it's, a, if it's too high, too low, the machine might tell us there's an error reading it. Um, in that case, we would draw blood and, and send it, you know, to the lab for a stat reading. So our first thing is to confirm this by checking their, you know, by grabbing a glucometer and actually performing a, a blood sugar check. Now, let's pretend you're out at the grocery store or something and somebody, you know, maybe just all of a sudden creates a stir and is like, oh, I don't feel good, blah, blah, blah. And you don't have a glucometer present. So for actual or suspected hypoglycemia, we treat it the same way. Hopefully we have a glucometer present and we can confirm that. But if not, we just say, you know what, better to treat than not to treat, right? Because we know this is going to be potentially life-threatening. So our 15-15 rule comes in, and remember this is for actual or suspected hypoglycemia. We are going to provide that person with 15 grams of simple carbohydrate. Most often this is through, you know, orange juice, apple juice, some kind of fruit juice or something that is going to be broken down very quickly by the body. Then we recheck that blood glucose level in 15 minutes. If the blood glucose level is still below 70, we're going to provide an additional 15 grams of simple carbohydrate. So another glass of juice, whatever it is. We're going to recheck that blood glucose level in another 15 minutes. Now, if it's still below 70, we need to give them some kind of supplement, you know, besides that juice. Maybe we're going to give them intramuscular glucagon. We're going to give them um, dextrose, which is, you know, fancy word for sugar through the IV. Um, they also have, you know, several other products. Um, if your patient isn't able to drink juice, you know, I, I told you all the story about the guy who I had to use the gel because he was on thickened liquids and all of that stuff. So just know what's available to you as far as getting that person that 15 grams of simple carbohydrates as soon as you, you can, right? Um, but remember, it's simple carbs, uh, 15 minutes, we check. If it's still low, another 15 grams of simple carbs, another 15 minutes, we check. At this point, if it's still, um, you know, still low after that, that, uh, well, I guess in this case, it would be the third check, right? Because you had your first one saying, yes, they are hypoglycemic. You provided that sugar. Second check, yes, they're still low, provided that sugar. So now third check, if they're still low, this is when we have, um, we, you know, probably, give that milligram of glucagon, uh, I'm sorry, glucagon intramuscularly um, and try bring their sugar up like that. 
Now we wanna make sure after we do this that we do provide them with a snack that has complex carbohydrates. Because remember, the body's gonna burn through that simple stuff pretty quickly, especially if it was very hypoglycemic, right? So we have to give them something that's gonna sustain them for longer than you know, either the insulin that we gave or just whatever their their body is uh, is doing. So then we're gonna switch to a snack with complex carbohydrates. Um, and uh, you know maybe some protein and everything. So now now when they're feeling a little better, we we give them, you know, a sandwich. Um, I don't know for whatever reason I'm like a bowl of oatmeal, whatever it is, but something that is um, you know a complex carbohydrate that their body will have to work at a little bit. All right. I believe that is all I wanted to say about hypoglycemia. Thank you. Let's discuss hyperglycemia. So hyperglycemia occurs when we have an elevated blood sugar level. Now, unlike hypoglycemia that defines it as, you know, less than 70, there's not necessarily a, you know, oh, when you have this number and greater than, um, then this is where we're going to define this as hyperglycemia. So I don't have a concrete number to provide y'all with. Uh, now this person is hyperglycemic. But um, I would say, you know, it would be more going back to, you know, is it a uh, casual glucose level, you know, greater than 200? Is it a fasting glucose level, um, you know, greater than 120? So I guess just for reference, you could use those, those textbook examples. But let's just instead, we'll focus on the clinical manifestations of hyperglycemia. So we know that hyperglycemia refers to a high blood sugar level in the body. Um, our symptoms of, or our clinical manifestations of hyperglycemia can include, it's the high and dry, right? So we have dry mouth, increased thirst, uh, frequent urination. So let's talk about those three for just a second. What happens is your kidneys are like, what the heck? We've got too much sugar in here. We got to get rid of this stuff, right? So they start working in overtime. They're trying to filter out that sugar and that causes an increase um, in your urination, right? And then because we're have this increase, this poly, polyuria, right? That frequent urination. Now we're dehydrated. So now we have the excessive thirst, the polydipsia that occurs. So this increased thirst, very common symptom of hyperglycemia, Remember, the kidneys are working hard to remove that sugar. There's more urine being produced. So now we're a little bit dehydrated. So we have this excessive thirst to try to reverse that dehydration. On top of that, we get the dry mouth because we're dehydrated, right? So that's how kind of all those three uh, components work together. Um, I know we have the polyphagia too, and that's that excessive hunger. Um, so I know that hunger is a clinical manifestation of um, hypoglycemia. So where we see this hunger and weight loss is more often with our type 1 diabetics because what happens is the glucose is out in the, the bloodstream, but it needs to get into the cells. But because there's not insulin there allowing it into the cells, those cells are still starving. So what happens is we have that excessive hunger because our cells are starving and they're saying, hey, you gotta, you gotta give us something here. So we eat and we eat and we eat, um, but you don't have weight gain because nothing is being moved into those cells. So that polyphagia, that uh, excessive hunger, we do see more as a symptom of type one hyperglycemia. 
uh, type 1 diabetes, and that is the reason why. So our other symptoms that we might see um, with hyperglycemia, we are going to see um, possibly blurred vision. Um, what happens is, you know, you've got this, um, you know, this high amount of blood sugar, it damages these blood vessels. Uh, they're very, very tiny blood vessels in your eyes. So it can actually cause the um, some kind of temporary changes in the shape of the lens in your eye, which is why we have blurred vision. But then once you get that blood sugar down, um, if it's just acute hypo hyperglycemia, that should resolve. Um, we know when we have chronic hyperglycemia, we're gonna see slow wound healing. Um, we are also going to have, you know, fatigue and weakness, and this is because those cells are not receiving the glucose, right? It's just hanging out in the bloodstream. It's not getting to where it needs to go, where it's useful for the body. Now, how do we treat hyperglycemia? So it doesn't have a quick fix like our hypo does with the 15-15 rule, right? So with this, it's kind of dependent. Is this an emergent case of hyper, you know, acute hyperglycemia related to something like DKA or HHS? Is this chronic, you know, kind of associated with type 2 diabetes? In in you know, regardless of whether it's type 1, type 2, the goal is going to be bringing the person back down to normal glycemic levels, um, getting that glucose you know, to move into the cells. Uh, so depending on what type of diabetes they have, this is either going to be through insulin administration. If it's type 2 diabetes, we're going to hope to kind of help better manage this with diet and exercise, maybe some oral, um, uh, you know, anti-diabetics. Um, in the cases, again, of either DKA or HHS, where this is an acute, like we got to get this under control because this is life-threatening, in that case, they're probably going to do uh, regular insulin intravenously to really get this person's blood sugar down, not only quickly, but in a very controlled manner. So hyperglycemia, high and dry, think dry mouth, increased thirst, frequent urination because they're a little bit dehydrated, right? We've got blurred vision, um, headaches, uh, weakness, and uh, I think that's about, I think that's about it. And all of that is because um, glucose is hanging out in the bloodstream and not moving into the cells where it's needed to do all the things it needs to do. Thank you so much. Let's spend a few minutes talking about DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, and HHS. HHS stands for hyperglycemic hyperosmolar syndrome. So I want to primarily focus on DKA first, and then we'll talk about HHS. So DKA is a complication related to diabetes. It tends to occur more frequently in type 1 diabetics. However, it is possible that a type 2 diabetic um, may experience DKA. It's just, all, it's just a lot less common for that to happen. Usually a type 2 will experience HHS. Now, HHS, it is also possible for a type 1 diabetic to experience HHS, but again, just less likely. So both DKA and HHS are complications of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. However, DKA more commonly associated with type 1 diabetes, HHS more commonly associated with type 2 diabetes. All right, let's talk about DKA. So 
There are three main clinical features of it, hyperglycemia, dehydration and electrolyte loss, and then acidosis. Um, why do people develop DKA? There are three primary causes of DKA, decreased or missed doses of insulin, illness or infection, um, and then undiagnosed or you know un untreated diabetes. So a lot of times this is how type 1 diabetics will discover that they have type 1 diabetes is an, uh, um, an episode of DKA. You know, they don't know it's DKA, they just know there's something wrong, right? And they go to the emergency room and then they you know, tell them, oh, it looks like you're in diabetic ketoacidosis. And then they can, you know, make that, that diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. Now, why would um, illness or infection cause or, uh, well, yeah, let's just say cause uh, DKA, um, anything that's going to cause extra stress on the body and raise, uh, raise blood sugar levels, um, you know, can can potentially just kind of initiate that that DKA, right? Um, the other thing to keep in mind. Sorry, I'm kind of toggle through my notes. Um, one of the other things with a uh, you know a, again, um, this one might be a little bit more likely with well. Okay, sorry. So this is an instance where a type two diabetic could develop DKA is if there's all of a sudden, you know, big changes in their medication and then there's a severe lack or, you know, a severe deficiency in insulin availability. So that is an example of how a type two diabetic could potentially uh, develop DKA. All right, let's talk about our assessment findings for, um, for DKA. So this is gonna be, the, the blood sugar level, um, it's going to be high, but it doesn't necessarily have to be all that high. Like a lot of times we kind of think like, oh my gosh, it must just have this sky high blood sugar. The sky high blood sugars are more seen with HHS than DKA. They are elevated, but it's not going to be as elevated as an HHS. So textbook level greater than 300. You have the polyuria and the polydipsia because remember there is dehydration occurring when somebody has DKA. So they have that frequent urination, that excessive thirst because they're dehydrated. Um, they may have you know the nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, confusion. The big finding you know where you're like, yep, that's DKA is they're gonna have that fruity breath because they're blowing off ketones, right? So that leads to that fruity breath or sometimes it's described as... Um, almost smelling like, um, uh, oh my gosh, I just forgot the name of it, like the nail polish, um, I don't know, nail polish smells, that's what we'll call it. Uh, they also may have uh, Kuzmal's respiration. So Kuzmal's respiration are um, very rapid, deep breathe, deep breaths. And what's happening is your body is trying to blow off that, um, you know, the acidosis part of it. So your body's trying to correct the acidotic state. Now, let us, now the thing with the mental status is it can kind of, it, it can be kind of all over the place. You can have them be like super alert. You can have them be real lethargic or potentially even in a coma. So kind of all over the place. Um, we might be kind of looking at some of those other symptoms to help us uh, figure that out. Um, just because the mental status may not be as reliable as some of these other clinical manifestations of, of uh, letting us know what's going on. 
Um, big thing with the diabetic ketoacidosis is they are producing ketones, right? Now, I know that there's like the keto diet. We're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk about ketone production ketone production as it relates to DKA. So there's the presence of ketones in the blood and the urine. That'll be another, you know, another assessment finding, right? So what's happening is the body is breaking down fats for energies, um, for energies, for energy. So in somebody who is experiencing DKA, when they go and do a urinalysis, there's going to be ketones present in the urine. There's going to be glucose present in the urine. Uh, DKA usually uh, presents, you know, very quickly. So it could be anywhere from a few hours to a few days. Um, let me think if there's any other things I want to say before we start to talk about the treatment. All right. So let's talk about the treatment. Sorry, I was trying to toggle through notes here. Uh, so how do we treat DKA? I'm not going to go super in-depth into this, but there's just a couple of things to keep in mind. We want to rehydrate our patient. This is typically going to be done through IV fluids. Um, they're probably going to have a continuous, um, you know, IV of regular insulin. So they will be getting insulin, not subcutaneously, but through that IV. Remember that regular insulin is the only type of insulin that can go through an IV. They're also gonna work to reverse the acidosis and restore that electrolyte balance. So a lot of times you'll see um, potassium will be high when somebody first comes in with DKA, and then what will happen is we give so much insulin to restore the normal glycemic levels that will end up dropping their, um, their potassium. So sometimes you might have to do some potassium replacement after the treatment for DKA. Uh, additionally, you know, you're just monitoring that blood glucose, making sure that you're getting it back to those normal glycemic levels. You're looking at renal function because the kidneys just had to work really, really hard to try to correct what was going on. Um, you're looking at urinary output. We're hoping that that would return to normal, um, checking all those electrolyte levels. And then um, one of the other things that you would be doing, and again, this is related to those electrolyte imbalances, you'd be listening to lungs for signs of fluid overload. Not going to get too much into that. Um, I just want you guys really to understand the, um, you know, those clinical manifestations and uh, how somebody developing DKA would present. So now that we've talked about DKA for a little bit, let's go ahead and talk about HHS. So remember, HHS is more prevalent in our type 2 diabetics. However, it could also happen in a type 1 diabetic. Um, So now, I don't know, I always kind of just think of it as like HHS is similar to DKA, except it's without the, uh, you know, ketoacidosis, which really that just means it's diabetic. So maybe it's not the best way to think about it. But HHS is when we have that extreme hyperglycemic, or, sorry, hyperglycemia without that diabetic ketoacidosis. Because this is, or there is still enough insulin in the body to prevent the breakdown of fats. So because with our type 2 diabetics, it's either they're not producing enough insulin or the insulin that they're producing, you know, isn't as effective as it used to be, you know, or whatever the case is, but there's typically still enough of it present 
that the body is making that we don't have the breakdown of fat. So that's why we don't develop that ketoacidosis with HHS. With HHS, um, there are... Well, there are a lot of things that can um, that could potentially cause HHS. Um, a lot of times, though, it does become related to uh, related to some other infection or some other stress on the body, kind of precipitated the development of HHS. Uh, and then there is that insulin deficiency, you know, in combination with that stress. Therefore, the blood sugar is going to go super high, and then we're going to start to develop these complications. So with HHS, you do have very, very high blood sugars. So anywhere from, you know, 600 to 12,000, 12,000, uh, sorry, 1,200, I really, really elevated it, probably not 12,000, but 1,200. Um, but, you know, so we talked about DKA, we're seeing blood sugar elevations or blood sugar um levels greater than 300 with HHS, usually greater than 600, uh, could be all the way up to 1200. Um, our symptoms, they do kind of share the, um, you know, some of those symptoms. So excessive thirst, frequent urination, fatigue, those ones are going to be um, kind of shared between both HHS and DKA. HHS though, because of the kind of I don't know, chronic high blood sugar that's leading to it, you might see some more neurological symptoms um, than you would with DKA. So you might have, you know, more confusion, uh, coma, seizures, things like that. So those mental status changes due to the neurological effect of HHS may be more um, uh, severe in, in the develop, or I'm sorry, in HHS. Uh, this one does have also a more gradual onset. So whereas DKA is hours to days, HHS tends to be days to weeks before it develops. Let's see, we treat it kind of the same way that you treat DKA. Um, we thankfully wouldn't have to be trying to manage the uh, acidosis part of it because we don't typically have the acidosis, um, you know, or changes in body's pH like you would with DKA. Um, but one thing to note about HHS, it does actually have a higher mortality rate than DKA just because of the um, effects of dehydration and the neurological complications can actually be um, more severe with HHS than DKA. So I think you hear a lot more about DKA, uh, but HHS, interestingly enough, is actually, um, you know, the more... Uh, well, just there's higher mortality, um, more, sorry, there's higher mortality, mortality associated with HHS than DKA, which I thought was real interesting because I, like I said, I feel like you hear a lot more about, uh, about, uh, DKA than you do HHS. So there you go. There's a very, very basic crash course of DKA and HHS. Thank you. All right, let's discuss metformin. So metformin's pharmacologic class is biguanide and its therapeutic class is anti-diabetic. Um, primarily you just hear metformin referred to as metformin. It does have some uh, brand names including Fortimet or Glumetza, Ryomet, 
but most of the time you just hear it referred to as it's good old generic metformin. Metformin has been around a long time. It's very inexpensive and uh, you know pretty pretty effective. Um, metformin is used for type 2 diabetes only. You would not use metformin on a type 1 diabetic. It does also have other potential uses for um, women with uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So sometimes you might have a patient who is not diabetic but is taking metformin and that is uh, likely the reason why they're doing so. So this is available as an oral solution and also um, tablets, both immediate and extended release. So just a reminder, anytime we have an extended release cabinet, uh, just remember that we would not crush or chew. Well, we wouldn't chew our patients' medicines because that's gross. I meant to say uh, crush or uh, break in half, but instead I said chew. And I made it awkward. So anywho, we would not crush or cut a uh, extended release tablet. Um, if it's immediate release and it's scored, we would be okay to cut that in half. So let's talk about how um, how metformin works. And I don't want to get you know super super technical about it or anything. But what it does is it works to decrease the amount of glucose that the liver produces. And then it also increases insulin sensitivity. So this is an adjunct to decreased, no, increased activity levels and uh, you know following a, a better diet. So when somebody is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, of course our first line is going to be, you know, that we should... Um, uh, um, I'm so sorry. I just saw that Kyler Murray is expected to start on Sunday and I totally got squirrely. Okay. So sorry. When somebody is diagnosed with type two diabetes, first things that we're going to do is encourage them to, you know, follow a, a diabetic carb control diet, um, in, in increase their activity level. Then we're going to add a medication such as metformin as the oral anti-diabetic. Um, so this medication is intended to be you know, to go along with that improved diet and increased activity levels. Um, and then if all of those things don't work, then we would have to introduce insulin too. Uh, as far as the onset uh, peak and duration, depending on the type, whether it is the immediate release or the extended release, um, the peak is affected by that. Otherwise, regardless of the form of metformin, the onset is unknown and it's, you know, it's duration, how long it stays in a person's bloodstream is also unknown. The conventional uh, tablet does have a peak at around two to three hours and the extended release is about uh, four to eight hours. And it does say it has a half-life of, of about four to nine hours. So remember a half-life would be um, when fifty percent of the blood or I'm sorry, when fifty percent of the drug concentration remains in the blood, but still we have an unknown duration with that. Um, the other thing that we need to consider with metformin is the dosage can definitely it can definitely be, be adjusted and played with, you know, uh, depending on the person. So a lot of times the doses will start at 500 milligrams and then they can be increased all the way up to a thousand milligrams. And that could be a couple of times, uh, throughout the day. Um, I believe it says the maximum dose is 
2.5 grams per day, um, which would be given in divided doses. Now, when somebody starts on metformin, they tend to start them low and then increase over time. So metformin has very, very common side effects of GI upset, including, including, including nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Those do tend to subside the longer a person stays on it. So what they'll sometimes do is start a person at like half the dose um, and then as they build up their tolerance and as those side effects, um, you know, decrease, then they increase the doses um, to get them up to whatever desired dose it needs to be. So if you have a patient who says, oh, I really don't want to take that medication. It really, you know, it doesn't sit well. It makes me feel pretty sick. Um, we're going to be positive, right? And we're going to tell them, um, typically the longer a person takes metformin, uh, their body, you know, gets used to those uh, or gets used to the medication and those uh, GI disturbances, they subside, right? Another thing that you can do to help with that is give metformin with meals, so taking it with food helps, and that is additional patient education that we uh, could provide. Some other side effects besides the um, GI uh, upset, you know, the things that go along with every medication out there, headaches, dizziness, you know, all, all, that, all that stuff. What are the more like common ones I would say that are more um, kind of characteristic of metformin? In addition to, you know, the very, very common GI upset that happens with them, uh, you can have a B12 deficiency with it. So that is something that you would want to monitor. Uh, in addition, it can be um, very hard on the liver. Um, you know, and a lot of times that depends on somebody's comorbidities. You know, if it's somebody who already has uh, some liver issues or, you know, things like that. But what can happen is if a person, uh, uh, you know, so if this medication is not properly eliminated by the body, when it builds up and, you know, causes toxicity, it will harm the liver and then a person can actually get lactic acidosis. So that is something that would need to be monitored. So if you had somebody who was diagnosed with diabetes, they, you know, maybe they got a little motivated and, and said, okay, I'm going to diet and exercise. But then that, you know, didn't work or maybe they were already pretty, pretty resistant, right? Because a lot of times people have diabetes for a while before they're diagnosed. So you start them on this medication um, and that would be something that we would do. We would want to monitor um, lab values, especially looking at the liver, but also the kidney um, to make sure just the, just one kidney, but the, <laughs> the, the liver labs and we'd want to look at renal function too, just to make sure uh, that they are... Uh, clearing that clearing that drug as they need to. I believe that is all I wanted to say. It doesn't tend to cause the hypoglycemia that some of the other oral antibiotic antibiotics antidiabetics do. So you don't often see metformin given with a hold parameter. If you do, most of the time it's more related to um, liver function than it is hypoglycemia. The other thing though to keep in mind with metformin is it does not get along with contrast dye used for CT scans, MRIs, things like that. So a lot of times when patients are in the hospital, metformin will be stopped and they would manage the diabetes with insulin because they want 
the metformin to have at least 48 hours to clear before they do any contrast with that person. Um, they typically will only restart the metformin once the kidney function has returned to normal. The other thing too, just to kind of keep in mind with any diabetic patient uh, taking any medications that could potentially cause hypoglycemia is to be careful when you're mixing it with beta blockers, just because they may not recognize those signs of hypoglycemia. And I believe, I believe those are the most highlighted <laughs> drug drug interactions. There are a couple of other ones, but a lot of times um, it's more related to drugs that may potentially cause hyperglycemia um, because we just want to make sure that we are monitoring blood sugar and monitoring that glycemic control. We might, might need to increase the metformin dose if the patient is taking a medication that may potentially cause increased blood sugar. All right. Thank you very much. Let's talk about insulin. So as we know, insulin is a hormone that promotes the storage of the body's fuels. Now, an easier way that I like to think of this is insulin is a key, right? So insulin is a key that floats around in your bloodstream and then it unlocks the cells. And then once the cells are unlocked, glucose can move into those cells and help the cells do what it is that they need to do, right? Um, so for example, when glucose moves into our muscles, we get energy, things like that. The other thing that uh, insulin does is it helps our body um, store, so it, it, it helps with the, um, the synthesis of glycogen. So what that means is it helps our body create glucose stores in the form of glycogen and stores them away in our liver so that it's available to us when we need it in times that either we have low blood sugar or in times of stress or fight or flight. So remember your blood sugar increases during times of stress, during times of fight or flight, right? So the other thing that insulin does um, besides allowing sugar to get into those cells is it also helps to promote glycogen storage in the liver. Okay, so now let's talk about insulin here, <laughs> or let's continue talking about insulin. So I'm just going to kind of talk about this like in order of the way your pharmacology book has it, just so that if you're kind of following along and want to take notes, you can. So our indications for insulin are the treatment of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Now, a type 1 diabetic is always going to require insulin. They are always going to be an insulin-dependent diabetic, right? A type 2 diabetic, insulin is kind of the, you know, it's our go-to when diet, exercise, and oral um, anti-diabetic medications aren't working. So when the person isn't responding to changes in diet, the addition of exercise, and the, um, you know, and any oral medications like glipizide or metformin, anything like that, if they're still resistant at that point, then we introduce insulin as a um, treatment to uh, manage their hyperglycemia. So, sorry, I'm scrolling down here. 
Um, we have different pharmaco pharmacokinetics for insulin because there are several different types of insulin. So you have everything from your rapid to your long acting and the pharmacokinetics of those um, different types are going to vary just because what they do to make or to say, well, to make this insulin is a rapid acting versus this one is a long acting is they do the addition of these um, little, I mean, we don't want to get too technical here, but they add these chains, right? Because all of this is now made by, um, you know, recom recum recumbent, I think I just said that word wrong, uh, DNA. So what they do is they add these chains that either make it so your body breaks it down right away, or it takes a little longer to break it down when you get those long acting insulins. So why do we have different types of um, or I should say different speeds, I guess, of insulin? Well, because it kind of helps to provide a more, um, I don't know, more, I'm going to say comprehensive, um, you know, way to manage blood sugar. So you might give your rapid actings, um, you know, when somebody is eating, things like that. But then you may give your more longer actings to provide control overnight to avoid that morning hyperglycemia. Um, so a lot of times people will require, um, you know, two types of insulin to just kind of help manage and provide more of like a basal rate, if you will, of insulin for overall better glucose management. So not uncommon at all to have people on, you know, several different types of insulin. You just have to be very, very careful when you are giving somebody, um, you know, I mean, giving somebody insulin in general, but certainly when you're giving somebody insulin who takes two different types a lot of times the dosages on the longer acting ones, it's a lot more units. So if you, you know, made a medication error and somebody was supposed to get 10 units of Lantus, but you gave 10 units of regular, or I'm sorry, regular, of uh, uh, Lispro or, you know, one of the, the rapids, um, you could really, really drop that person. So a lot of times in facilities, insulin has to be double checked by a second RN. Um, so just keep, keep that in mind. So let's talk for just a second about those different, um, different types, the different categories of insulin. So your rapid actings, you have a couple different types of those. You have Lispro or Humalog, um, Aspart, and uh, Glulisin, which I've really only heard of the first, or I mean, I've only given the first two, the, um, excuse me, the Novolog and the Humalog. Um, but again, I mean, that, or I don't mean to say again, you know, I always say again, but that doesn't mean that the other, <laughs> the other one doesn't exist. I just don't have personal, personal experience with it. Um, one of the things that those three different insulins, the Lispro, the Aspart, and the Glulisin, I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly. One of the things they have in common with the onset is the longest um, duration of their onset is 15 minutes. So that's just kind of how I would, you know, try to remember those ones. Your Lispro is 10 to 15 and the other two are 5 to 15, but they do have that 15 minutes in common. Um, your peak, very similar with this one. Uh, Lispro peaks within around an hour and um, the uh, Aspart peaks within 40 to 50 minutes. And then the, um, that third one, the glulosine, peaks anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. So with that one, I would say pretty safe to kind of clock it in your, your memory that rapid actings tend to peak at around one hour. 
Um, so what that means is we would need to monitor for hypoglycemia around an hour after administration. So we, we gave the example, if uh, you gave somebody this rapid acting insulin to help cover a meal, but then that person didn't actually eat, we would be in danger of that person dropping, um, you know, in danger of them becoming hypoglycemic. And other things can lead to that too, not just skipped meals, but you know, I mean, if somebody, um, let's say somebody took their dose of insulin and then they went to the gym and they worked out, we know that while you're working out, you're going to get that spike of you know that kind of release of glycogen right that release of of glucose into your into your bloodstream so that it's available for your muscles to use and all of that but then what happens is after you work out your body is more sensitive to the insulin right so if you take insulin and then you immediately go work out yes you have that little spike but then you have the risk of becoming hypoglycemic so we would want to make sure that people are monitoring their sugar more closely uh, especially if it's kind of a new workout regimen or maybe if they're switching to something that's kind of more high intensity. And we would encourage that person to have a snack of complex carbohydrates before they worked out. So that's our peak about an hour after for rapid acting. The duration, anywhere from two to four hours on those. Um, and this works fast, right? It's rapid acting. So um, we just kind of, again, have to have to keep that in mind. Uh, the other thing to just kind of keep in mind with that uh, when we think about the duration is this is the other reason why we do want to get complex carbohydrates added if somebody has um, a hypoglycemic event after. If we give somebody like a simple sugar, so for example, like, you know, if we're thinking about the 15-15 rule and somebody's blood sugar really, really drops and we give them that uh, orange juice, they are gonna get that increase in their blood sugar, but then what's gonna happen is that that uh, that insulin lasts, you know, that duration is two to four hours, and the little bit of sugar that's in that orange juice is not going to outlast that two to four hour duration. So we start with that simple sugar, we get their blood sugar up quickly, but then we need to get them some protein and we need to get them some complex carbohydrates too. All right. Our short-acting insulin, otherwise known as regular insulin, has some other names, Humulin R, Novolin R. Um, this one, the onset is anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes, and its peak is two to three hours. So where our peak with rapid is one hour, our peak with short-acting is two to three hours, and our duration is four to six hours. Um, so keep in mind, regular insulin is the only insulin that can be given through an IV. So this one might be given through a pump, um, might be, uh, you know, uh, an intravenous um, injection, you know, in an emergency situation. Um, it can also be given intramuscularly in an emergency situation. But, you know, for most of our insulins, um, with the exception of the regular insulin, it's going to be a subcutaneous uh, injection. So our regular... Uh, you know, same thing as we talked about before, as far as, you know, exercising and things like that. It's just that our onset, our peak and our duration are slightly different, right? So it's just a little bit, it, it kind of hangs out just a little bit longer. Next, excuse me, is our intermediate acting. So this is our NPH is intermediate. Um, I'm trying to think, 
the way that I would maybe remember that. So this is a silly thing, but like intermediate is kind of a long word. And when you think about NPH, what it stands for is, <laughs> I don't know why I was like, here, try this, it'll be easy. But now I'm already regretting my decision. So NPH stands for neutral, protamine, I got those two words. But then the last one, Hagedorn, Hagedorn, I don't know. So that's kind of a long word or, you know, a long medication name. So neutral protamine Hagedorn is long, like intermediate is long. So maybe that's how I would try to help <laughs> help remind myself um, uh, which the intermediates are, is it's a long, long word for kind of a longly named medication. Oh, there you go. Have fun with that. Um, the uh, additional brands of that are Humulin N. So the N is, you know, like NPH. Um, and then uh, going back for a second, sorry, not to confuse anybody, anyone, but the Humulin R for regular. So that's helpful too, right? So Humulin R is regular. Humulin N is NPH. Um, with this one, your uh, NPH two to four hours, um, your Humulin N, three to four hours. So again, you've kind of got that, that four hour um, onset in common. So sorry, I was referring to the onset when I said two to four hours and three to four hours. So that's the onset of these, these types of insulins. Our peaks are four to 12 hours. So you can see why on this intermediate acting, that might be one that people kind of take at night to kind of help prevent that morning hyperglycemia, and also to kind of provide a basal rate of insulin. So the duration of our intermediate is anywhere from 16 to 20 hours. Um, finally, or not finally, but yeah, I'm going to say finally, because I'm not going to even talk about that inhaled insulin at all. So our very long acting insulins, um, Lantus or Glargine, maybe Glargine, Glargine, I always say Gine, but I just call it Lantus because I know how to say Lantus. Um, with this one, this is our very long acting and uh, it's onset, you know, kind of one hour. But the, the thing that is nice about this type of insulin, if you will, is that it doesn't really have a peak. It is just continuous. So this is a perfect insulin used as a basal dose. So this is the insulin I give my kitty cats because, you know, I don't poke them and monitor their blood sugar. So this is a, just a continuous acting insulin without a peak. So we don't have, I don't want to say there's no risk because there's certainly still a risk for hypoglycemia, but there's not going to be that key, like, oh my gosh, in one hour, I need to check for hypoglycemia. Um, so with this one, it is going to be really looking for symptoms of hypoglycemia, but our duration of this one, anywhere from, you know, 24 to 36 hours. So that is our categories of insulin. Let's talk about a few more things with insulin though. So let's talk about our contraindications. Now there's really not any major contraindications for insulin. This is a natural hormone that is produced and absolutely needed by our bodies. Um, there did used to be, so back in the day, they actually made insulin from either pigs or cows. So there was higher incidence of allergies back then, but now it is um, made, you know, in labs and stuff like that. So because we've taken out the bovine and the porcine and all that, we have less, less, uh, um, less allergies related to this medication. That doesn't mean that you won't still sometimes get some, um, 
you know, site of injection reactions and, and things like that, but things like that. But I'll tell you, um, I've given a lot of insulin over the years and I really have never had any issues with people being allergic to insulin. Not to say that it doesn't happen, but I do think it is extremely rare, uh, that it does happen. Um, some other, I mean, so, so let's just, we'll, we'll talk about that for a second, the injection sites. So um, we do want to make sure that we are, in, that not only we as nurses are rotating those uh, injection sites, but when we're providing teaching to our patients, um, that we are also encouraging them to rotate injection sites. And remember that the best way to make sure our patient knows how to provide themselves with insulin is to have them uh, provide us a, a um, return demonstration, right? So let's see, what else do I want to talk about? I want to, there are some drug-drug interactions. Um, and a lot of times the drug-drug interactions are more to do with the fact that they could decrease blood sugar. So you just would have to more closely uh, monitor, you know, the person's blood sugar while they're taking these drugs, um, you know, some adjustments might need to be made to their insulin. Um, so there are certain, uh, certain things that decrease blood sugar. So your MAOIs, which are a lot of times, I believe, I actually don't know a ton about them, but I believe they're mostly, um, psych meds. So those ones can decrease, uh, blood sugar, as can your um, beta blockers. So that is the one that you do need to be kind of careful about because additionally, beta blockers can actually block the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia. So one of the things, you know, that we've mentioned a few times in class is beta blockers, which are used to reduce blood pressure, are also oftentimes, you know, propanolol, things like that are used to help with anxiety because it blocks your body's kind of fight or flight. So for example, if you have somebody who is super, super nervous to get up and give a speech in front of someone, in front of someone, maybe let's, let's make this more realistic in front of a room full of people. Um, what you would do is, uh, maybe have a prescription for a propanolol. So what that does, they take their propanolol, they give their speech and they can do so without their heart beating out of their chest, without sweating, without all of that. So it kind of blocks all of those, um, sympathetic, sympathetic responses that the body wants to do because it wants to fly the heck out of there. Right? So the problem with this though, when we mix beta blockers and insulin, the body's ability to warn you that you're hypoglycemic may be kind of shut off by that beta blocker. So just have to be extra careful about monitoring for signs of hypo, or I'm sorry, monitoring for hypoglycemia and also providing your patient with education that, you know, hey, you're on insulin, you're on this other medication, the other medication, the beta blocker may prevent you from being able to feel hypoglycemic. So you got to look for these other ways to tell, um, you know, so maybe it's that hunger first, maybe it's a little bit of the irritability or fatigue, all those things, but it's not necessarily going to be the shakiness, the tachycardia, the increased respirations, like what you would see on somebody who is not on a beta blocker. Okay. I'm trying to think what else I want to say about insulin. Um, just some other kind of nursing considerations with that. 
Um, it, you know, giving injectable insulin is the treatment of choice for anybody who is pregnant or lactating. Um, so if you had somebody who was previously on an oral anti-diabetic medication, they might be changed to, ooh, I just made so many sounds, changed to insulin um, during pregnancy and throughout lactation, just because we aren't worried about that crossing, uh, you know, crossing through the placenta and getting to the baby like we would be some of the, the oral medication or crossing into um, to breast milk. The other things, you know, a lot of our nursing considerations for insulin is really just nursing considerations for managing care for people with diabetes. So we do wanna, you know, be making, making sure that we're thorough about doing skin checks and also paying attention, you know, if any of the injection sites look like they're not so happy. Uh, we absolutely wanna monitor glucose levels. We'd wanna look for trends too. We also want to monitor the person's exercise amount and to see if adjustments need to be made to, um, to insulin as a result of that. And then when we think about appropriate lab values, there's a few things we're looking at, right? We're looking at the hemoglobin A1C um, with you know, the goal being less than seven for our diabetic patients. And we are also just you know, kind of wanting to look at glucose trends, like I already mentioned, but also looking at kidney and liver health. So they might be looking at um, uh, labs that monitor kidney function and renal function, just to you know, also kind of look at the progression of diabetes, right? I think that that is all I want to say about that. Um, just a few more things. Remember how we talked about um, periods of stress rising or having an impact, you know, on increasing your blood sugar. So when patients are in the hospital, uh, even if they weren't previously requiring insulin, now they might require insulin. And also, um, a lot of times insulin is the drug of choice, if you will, to monitor or I'm sorry, to manage patient, patient's glucose in the hospital, just because some of the other medications, like for example, metformin, can interact with contrast dye. So if they think about, you know, wanting to take a patient down for a scan or something like that, they're probably going to keep them off of their oral medication while they're in the hospital and just manage their, their glucose with insulin. So that's something else to keep in mind for your patient education. And I think... I think that that is all I want to say about insulin for now. Please let me know if you have any questions and thank you so much.